Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The FT. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today is Daniel Schaefer, investment banking correspondent, Brooke Masters, chief regulation correspondent, and Jennifer Thompson, retail banking correspondent. This week, we'll take a look at the Chancellor George Osborne warning banks that they will be broken up unless they comply with rules to make the financial system safer. We'll discuss Barclays woes as the bank reels from the LIBOR scandal, senior management stepping down and UK authorities probing its Qatar connections. And finally, we'll take a look at risk-weighted assets and the vast differences between the models that global banks use to calculate how much capital they need to hold. First, though, the story of the day, Jenny, is the intervention from the Chancellor maybe surprising the banks, saying that he is going to electrify the ring fence after all. This is the Vickers Commission proposal from last year that banks should be ring fenced, but following a a parliamentary commission recommendation that that ring fence should be electrified. In other words, there should be penalties if banks fail to comply. The Chancellor has backed that idea. Maybe surprising given that he signalled, I think, a few months ago that he wasn't minded to do that. What do you think has, uh, has been going on behind the scenes? Well, two things, really. I mean, first of all, politically, the Chancellor will be aware that the call to electrify the ring fence came from the Commission on Banking Standards, chaired by Andrew Tyree, also lords on the committee such as Nigel Lawson. So when this reform bill does go through Parliament and the lords in order to gain support, it is a concession that people were saying he, he would have to make. Yeah, and this, Nigel Lawson was particularly adamant that this should be the case. Right? Yeah, I mean, the commission, you know, they came out, they were completely in favour of this, saying that banks yeah. needed this greater threat of punishment. And the second reason, of course, is the broader context in the banking industry right now. Scandals such as PPI mis-selling, interest rate derivatives mis-selling, LIBOR settlements, they've all added up. They've done nothing to fight the cause of the sector in saying, well, we can be trusted to do things to the best of our ability when it comes to to regulations and avoiding sanctions. So in that sense, it just makes political sense for the Chancellor to be sounding tough vis-a-vis the electorate, I suppose, but also in terms of practical passage of the legislation through the Lords, so on both fronts. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, nobody in the Lords or the Commons wants this to be, you know, dragged out. I mean, in the Vicars' proposals, the Commission themselves, you know, they've had, you know, months getting on for a couple of years now to discuss these issues. I think the other thing to remember about his speech today is that there is nothing fundamentally new in terms of what's already been announced for the ring fence. All of this has been spelled out already. The banks have had time to digest it and they've won concessions on issues such as where they sell derivatives. So to small businesses, they can now sell them from within the retail part of the ring fence. So nothing has changed for them. What has changed really is the threat of a punishment. But in terms of you know how they ought to have complied uh, to begin with, nothing nothing has has altered. In terms of that threat, I mean, all the bankers that I've spoken to over the past day or two seem pretty sanguine about this. As you say, Jenny, there's a kind of preparedness to actually get on and and put these ring fences in place. And I don't think anyone's particularly worried about 
this threat? I mean, the, the British Bankers Association has come out with tough language criticising it and talking about uncertainty and so on. But actually, bankers on the ground don't seem to be too fearful. They see it as political rhetoric. Brooke, do you think it actually electrification does actually mean anything? If we are to take the bankers at their word that they've learned their lesson, they're going to follow the rules this time, it shouldn't have any effect. This is sort of a out there at the long range threat issue. Next boom time, 10 years from, from now. now. Exactly. Yeah. And also, you know, Andrew Bailey, who is actually the guy who would decide who's cheating in the end, because he is the chief banking supervisor, has said that if one were actually going to take the step and force a bank to change its business model and split into, that's an incredibly harsh step. And he, in fact, wants political backup for it. And he's not dying to use this power in any way. As a practical matter, assuming the banks weren't planning to cheat, which they kept saying they aren't, it doesn't matter. We should move on to our second topic for the day, which is Barclays. Daniel, you've been very closely involved in reporting this story, breaking the news last week that there was a new element to this investigation by regulators into their dealings with Qatar, that they're alleged now to have actually lent the money to Qatari investors so that those investors could then buy the bank's own shares back in 2008. What exactly do we know happened and how much of this is still hazy? Quite a lot of it actually still is hazy. Um, (laughs) What we know is that since already more than half a year, we know that there are these investigations. First, we knew about the FSA and then the SFO going on in connection with the capital raising Barclays did in 2008. So at the height of the financial crisis, when there were desperate to avoid a state bailout and did basically everything to get outside investors on board. And at the time, they took a total of $6.1 billion in, in two capital raisings from Qatar and another few billions from other investors as well. But they were really the main ones sort of rescuing Barclays from a state bailout. And the investigations that were started last year basically were looking into fees that were paid to the Qataris, which the investigators allege might have been some sort of kickbacks for the deal. And what has emerged now is sort of a new strand to the investigation, uh, which actually the, the regulators and authorities only came to this new strand a, a few weeks ago, which is an allegation that Barclays did actually lend money to the Qataris to fund the cash call. We don't know for sure whether this loan does exist, in what form it does exist, but what we know is that they're investigating this and, and that there are strong allegations that Barclays did some sort of financing structure for the deal. Okay. Now, at the weekend, we also got news that the finance director of of Barclays, Chris Lucas, along with Mark Harding, the bank's general counsel, were to leave. Now, Chris Lucas was one of the people that we know was being investigated by regulators over the Qatari affair. Is this connected? Barclays says it isn't connected. But I have to say, it seems slightly odd that few days after this has emerged and only a few weeks after this new strand of the investigation has been started. The timing seems slightly suspicious, I would have (laughs) to say, particularly because it wasn't only Chris Lucas who said he would retire, but also uh, Mark Harding, who's the general counsel. We've never heard that he's been implicated. No, no, he's not been been investigated against. But as the general counsel, he would have had to play some Some sort of role in the the capital raising, uh, definitely. So, I mean, we should point out, I suppose, that Chris Lucas has been 
been ill for some time and that we've actually reported for the past 18 months to, to two years that he has been looking to retire for various reasons, personal and, I guess, having been through the crisis, exhaustion plays a yeah. part. But on the basis of the people I've talked to, this does seem to have been the kind of maybe the last straw in terms of his, him wanting to go before there's any besmirching in public. Yeah. <laughs> it might have just accelerated what was exactly what was already going to happen. happen anyway. Yeah. And it may, in fact, be true for Mark Harding as well. He's been there for 10 years. Yes. It's a long time to be general counsel of a bank. Through a crisis, through a recovery. recovery You've got new management management now in place. It makes sense. Exactly. And don't forget, there is a Banking Standards Commission hearing tomorrow involving Barclays. Yes. It wouldn't have been a comfortable place. Yes. Well, certainly somebody I was speaking to told me that was one of the key points behind Chris Lucas's timing was that he's wanted to be able to go into that without something hanging over his head in the same way, actually, as an echo of what happened with Bob Diamond, who left as CEO last summer. He actually resigned before appearing before the Treasury Select Committee. We should move on to our final topic of the day, risk-weighted assets. Brooke, your favourite topic. It's been announced by the Basel Committee on Banking Supervision, the uh, international regulator, that there's some massive differences between different countries and different banks in terms of how they calculate risk weightings. And this matters because this is one of the two parts of the calculation for capital ratios. If your risk-weighted asset number is is wrong or out of line with others, then it makes a nonsense of capital ratios being comparable. Exactly. There have long been allegations that some banks cheat and artificially reduce their risk-weighted assets by using models that understate risk. And so the Basel Committee, after all this fighting and discussion about it, decided to just see if they could find what the truth was. Hmm. So what they did is they created a model portfolio. They, They picked a bunch of assets and sent them out to 15 banks in nine countries and said, just tell us what you come back with. And overall, the difference of the amount of capital banks thought they would have to hold against this model portfolio, which is trading only, it's not loans. It's mm-hmm. it's the place where if there's going to be a problem, it's going to show up, was 13 million euros in capital versus 34 million, which is a two to one ratio, which is kind of what people expected. I mean, they, you expect big variation, but they found on individual kinds of assets, some banks were holding 16 times more capital than other banks. Um, and that level of difference was really shocking. I think, even to the Basel Committee, because they actually delayed the release of this to check the numbers. That's very interesting. What I suppose the big question is, what do they do on the back of you know finding out this great deviation? There are a couple of things. One quarter of the deviation, so you know, one out of four differences, are actually due to regulatory interpretations. So they can bring all the regulators together and say, okay, some of you are allowing cheating or some of you are piling on extra requirements and we need to have some... Be more explicit about it so that banks that have higher risk-weighted assets because they have tougher regulators should be able to say that. So that's the first thing they can do is deal with one quarter of it. The other bit is whether they say, okay, stop using models. These These are are the internal internal models models. that banks have actually been encouraged to use by their regulators because it shows that they are – working hard to understand the assets. Exactly. And and the question is whether they either say stop using models or place limits on the models like a floor. Like you can't, no matter how fantastic your models are and your model may say this, this loan or this asset will never, ever lose value. We don't care. You still have to hold capital against it. And I think that latter course is probably where they are headed is, is some more floors. Now, this is quite a timely intervention because if they're suspicious of uh, differences in risk-weighted assets now, arguably it's going to become more of an issue over the coming months because a lot of banks are engaged in reassessing their risk weightings. Daniel, you were looking at Deutsche Bank last week, which was going through just this exercise. Deutsche Bank is actually a prime example for all the questions that are being raised about this because they were unknown and they've admitted themselves that they are one of the weakest capitalized banks in Europe. and. 
And so every investor was basically looking at what happened in the fourth quarter and they were expected to increase their core tier one ratio from from six percent in mid 2012 this is under the basel three under the basel, sorry yeah under yeah. the new rules to 7.2 percent at the end of 2012 and actually what they achieved was eight percent yeah but then there were a lot of analysts who were saying, well, actually, they've used quite a lot of risk model improvements, as, as they would call it. I can it, see an, in, in an inverted comma around improvements there. Yeah, inverted commas around improvements. Yeah. So, so in a way, they, you know, they changed the risk models, which allowed them to, to have less RWA and, and thus a higher core tier one ratio. And of course, Deutsche Bank is saying it was only 25% of the, the improvement in the core tier one ratio actually came from uh, risk model improvements, right? But that's still, I mean, twenty five percent still seems quite a high number, given given how by how much the quarter year one ratio has shot up between uh, mid two thousand twelve and the end of the year. And we should say they're not alone either. A lot of other banks have been doing this over the past six twelve months. Um, we've seen a lot of improvements in r- those risk weightings. In fact, like SEB, which is a Swedish bank announced that they had cut their risk-weighted assets by 14% since the end of 2012, largely by shifting to models from a different approach that has floors. And some of the bankers themselves are very skeptical of their rivals. But the heads of Santander and JP Morgan have both been very outspoken about what they call optimization and you know what horrifying levels of cheating are involved uh, that their peers are doing. Quite. Well, the Basel Committee's uh, police department, I think, is going to have quite a lot to get their teeth stuck into over the next year or so. That's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Brooke and Daniel and Jennifer for their contributions and to thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Katie Carney. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. If banks fail to comply, the Chancellor has backed that idea. Maybe surprising, given that he signalled, I think, a few months ago that he wasn't minded to do that. What do you think has, uh, has been going on behind the scenes? Well, two things, really. I mean, first of all, politically, the Chancellor will be aware that the call to electrify the ring fence came from the Commission on Banking Standards, chaired by Andrew Tyree, also lords on the committee such as Nigel Lawson. So when this reform bill does go through Parliament and the lords in order to gain support, it is a concession that people were saying he, he would have to make. And yeah, Nigel Lawson was particularly adamant that this should be the case. Right? Yeah, I mean, the commission, you know, they came out, they were completely in favour of this, saying that banks yeah. needed this greater threat of punishment. And the second reason, of course, is the broader context in the banking industry right now. Scandals such as PPI mis-selling, interest rate derivatives mis-selling, LIBOR settlements, they've all added up. They've done nothing to fight the cause of the sector in saying, well, we can be trusted to do things to the best of our ability when it comes to to regulations and avoiding sanctions. So in that sense, it just makes political sense for the Chancellor to be sounding tough vis-a-vis the electorate, I suppose, but also in terms of practical passage of the legislation through the Lords, so on both fronts. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, nobody in the Lords or the Commons wants this to be, you know, dragged out. I mean, in the Vicar's proposals, the Commission themselves, you know, they've had, you know, months getting on for a couple of years now to discuss these issues. I think the other thing to remember about his speech today is that 
There is nothing fundamentally new in terms of what's already been announced for the ring fence. All of this has been spelled out already. The banks have had time to digest it and they've won concessions on issues such as where they sell derivatives. So to small businesses, they can now sell them from within the retail part of the ring fence. So nothing has changed for them. What has changed really is the threat of a punishment. But in terms of, you know, how they ought to have complied uh, to begin with, nothing, nothing has, has altered. In terms of that threat, I mean, all the bankers that I've spoken to over the past day or two seem pretty sanguine about this. As you say, Jenny, there's a kind of preparedness to actually get on and and put these ring fences in place. And I don't think anyone's particularly worried about this threat. I mean, the the British Bankers Association has come out with tough language criticising it and talking about uncertainty and so on. But actually, bankers on the ground don't seem to be too fearful. They see it as political rhetoric. Brooke, do you think actually electrification does actually mean anything? If we are to take the bankers at their word that they've learned their lesson, they're going to follow the rules this time, it shouldn't have any effect. This is sort of an out there at the long range threat issue. Next boom time, 10 years from from now. now. Exactly. And also, you know, Andrew Bailey, who is actually the guy who would decide who's cheating in the end because he is the chief banking supervisor, has said that if one were actually going to take the step and force a bank to change its business model and split into, that's an incredibly harsh step. And he, in fact, wants political backup for it. And he's not dying to use this power in any way. As a practical matter, assuming the banks weren't planning to cheat, which they kept saying they aren't, it doesn't matter. We should move on to our second topic for the day, which is Barclays. Daniel, you've been very closely involved in reporting this story, breaking the news last week that there was a new element to this investigation by regulators into their dealings with Qatar, that they're alleged now to have actually lent the money to Qatari investors so that those investors could then buy the bank's own shares back in 2008. What exactly do we know happened and how much of this is still hazy? Quite a lot of it actually still is hazy. Um, (laughs) What we know is that since already more than half a year, we know that there are these investigations. First, we knew about the FSA and then the SFO going on in connection with the capital raising Barclays did in 2008. So at the height of the financial crisis, when there were desperate to avoid a state bailout and did basically everything to get outside investors on board. And at the time, they took a total of $6.1 billion in, in two capital raisings from Qatar and another few billions from other investors as well. But they were really the main ones sort of rescuing Barclays from a state bailout. And the investigations that were started last year basically were looking into fees that were paid to the Qataris, which the investigators allege might have been some sort of kickbacks for the deal. And what has emerged now is sort of a new strand to the investigation, uh, which actually the, the regulators and authorities only came to this new strand a, a few weeks ago, which is an allegation that Barclays did actually lend money to the Qataris to fund the cash call. We don't know for sure whether this loan does exist, in what form it does exist, but what we know is that they're investigating this and, and that there are strong allegations that Barclays did some sort of financing structure for the deal. Okay. Now, at the weekend, we also got news that the finance director of of Barclays, Chris Lucas, along with Mark Harding, the bank's general counsel, were to leave. Now, Chris Lucas was one of the people that we know was being investigated by regulators over the Qatari affair. Is this connected? Barclays says it isn't connected. But I have to say, it seems slightly odd that a few days after 
this has emerged and only a few weeks after this new strand of the investigation has been started. The timing seems slightly suspicious, I would have to say, <laughs> particularly because it wasn't only Chris Lucas who said he would retire, but also uh, Mark Harding, who's the general counsel. We've never heard that he's been implicated. No, no, he's, he's, not been, no. he's not been investigated against. But as the general counsel, he would have had to play some, some sort role. of role yeah. in, the, in the capital raising, uh, definitely. So, I mean, we should point out, I suppose, that Chris Lucas has been ill for some time and that we've actually reported for the past 18 months to, to two years that he has been looking to retire for various reasons, personal and, I guess, having been through the crisis, exhaustion plays a yeah. part. But on the basis of the people I've talked to, this does seem to have been the kind of maybe the last straw in terms of his, him wanting to go before there's any besmirching in public. Yeah. <laughs> it might have just accelerated what was exactly what was already going to happen. happen anyway. yeah. And it may, in fact, be true for Mark Harding as well. He's been there for 10 years. Yes. It's a long time to be general counsel of a bank. Through a crisis, through a recovery. recovery. You've got a new management management now in place. It makes sense. Exactly. And don't forget there is a Banking Standards Commission hearing tomorrow involving Barclays. Yes. It wouldn't have been a comfortable place. Yes. Well, certainly somebody I was speaking to told me that was one of the key points behind Chris Lucas's timing was that he's wanted to be able to go into that without something hanging over his head in the same way, actually, as an echo of what happened with Bob Diamond, who left as CEO last summer. He actually resigned before appearing before the Treasury Select Committee. We should move on to our final topic of the day, risk-weighted assets. Brooke, your favourite topic. It's been announced by the Basel Committee on Banking Supervision, the uh, international regulator, that there's some massive differences between different countries and different banks in terms of how they calculate risk weightings. And this matters because this is one of the two parts of the calculation for capital ratios. If your risk-weighted asset number is is wrong or out of line with others, then it makes a nonsense of capital ratios being comparable. Exactly. There have long been allegations that some banks cheat and artificially reduce their risk weighted assets by using models that understate risk. And so the Basel Committee, after all this fighting and discussion about it, decided to just see if they could find what the truth was. Hmm. So what they did is they created a model portfolio. They, they picked a bunch of assets and sent them out to 15 banks in nine countries and said, just tell us what you come back with. And overall, the difference of the amount of capital banks thought they would have to hold against this model portfolio, which is trading only. It's not loans. It's mm-hmm. it's the place where if there's going to be a problem, it's going to show up, was 13 million euros in capital versus 34 million, which is a two to one ratio, which is kind of what people expected. I mean, they, they, you expect big variation, but they found on individual kinds of assets, some banks were holding 16 times more capital than other banks. Um, and that level of difference was really shocking. I think, even to the Basel Committee, because they actually delayed the release of this to check the numbers. That's very interesting. What I suppose the big question is, what do they do on the back of you know finding out this great deviation? There are a couple of things. One quarter of the deviation, so you know, one out of four differences, are actually due to regulatory interpretations. So they can bring all the regulators together and say, okay, some of you are allowing cheating or some of you are piling on extra requirements and we need to have some be more explicit about it so that banks that have higher risk-weighted assets because they have tougher regulators should be able to say that. So that's the first thing they can do is deal with one quarter of it. The other bit is whether they say, okay, stop using models. These These are the internal models models. that banks have actually been encouraged to use by their regulators because it shows that they are working hard to understand the assets. Exactly. And and the question is whether they either say stop using models or place limits on the models like a floor. Like you can't, no matter how fantastic your models are, and your model may say this, this loan or this asset will never, ever lose value. We don't care. You still have to hold capital against it. And I think that latter course is probably where they are headed is, is more floors. 
Now, this is quite a timely intervention because if they're suspicious of uh, differences in risk-weighted assets now, arguably it's going to become more of an issue over the coming months because a lot of banks are engaged in reassessing their risk weightings. Daniel, you were looking at Deutsche Bank last week, which was going through just this exercise. Deutsche Bank is actually a prime example for all the questions that are being raised about this because they were unknown and they've admitted themselves that they are one of the weakest capitalized banks in Europe. And And so every investor was basically looking at what happened in the fourth quarter and they were expected to increase their core tier one ratio from from six percent in mid 2012 this is under the basel three under the basel, sorry yeah under yeah. the new rules to 7.2 percent at the end of 2012 and actually what they achieved was eight percent yeah but then there were a lot of analysts who were saying, well, actually, they've used quite a lot of risk model improvements, as, as they would call it. I can it, see an, in, in an inverted comma around improvements there. Yeah, in inverted commas around improvements. Yeah. So so in a way, they you know they changed the risk models, which allowed them to, to have less RWA and then thus a higher core tier one ratio. And of course, Deutsche Bank is saying it was only 25% of the, the improvement in the core tier one ratio actually came from... Uh, risk model improvements, right? But that's still, I mean, twenty five percent still seems quite a high number, given given how by how much the quarter year one ratio has shot up between uh, mid two thousand twelve and the end of the year. And we should say they're not alone either. A lot of other banks have been doing this over the past six twelve months. Um, we've seen a lot of improvements in r- those risk weightings. In fact, like SEB, which is a Swedish bank announced that they had cut their risk-weighted assets by 14% since the end of 2012, largely by shifting to models from a different approach that has floors. And some of the bankers themselves are very skeptical of their rivals. But the heads of Santander and JP Morgan have both been very outspoken about what they call optimization and what horrifying levels of cheating are involved uh, that their peers are doing. Quite. Well, the Basel Committee's uh, police department, I think, is going to have quite a lot to get their teeth stuck into over the next year or so. That's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Brooke and Daniel and Jennifer for their contributions and to thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Katie Carney. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.